In this episode of Critical Attitudes, I speak with Professor Steve Connor, Grace II Professor of English at the University of Cambridge. The conversation happened in March 2021. In keeping with Steve's very wide interests, we cover a lot of very different things, and the exchange culminates with Steve giving an overview of his most recent research topics. Forms of giving way, modes of petition, the styles of seriousness, and the accented manners of work and labour. Steve's forthcoming book, A History of Asking, is due to appear soon with Open Humanities Press. I thought it might be nice to begin by going back to the beginning to think about how you became an academic. You know, what, what took you into this life as an academic? Like most things, I suppose, in most people's lives, uh, it was semi-planned, but it felt very, very accidental in that I, I hadn't dreamt all my life of being an academic. I, I dreamt that it, it might be kind of nice if you could do the sort of thing that I liked doing most of all, uh, which was reading and writing and getting paid for it. But like the majority of people, and I do have warrant for this, the majority of people, when you ask them what their ideal job would be, they say a writer. And I I suppose I can understand that. And I suppose I did, I did quite like the idea of being some kind of writer. Um, but I was just doing, I was doing a DPhil at Oxford. And uh, I knew I wouldn't have any money once the money ran out. I was a funded student. And so I applied for jobs. And I applied for any job that I thought I could do um, that would enable me to stay alive. And among them were, I think, a couple of university jobs, but also school teaching jobs. I thought that wouldn't be too bad. I'd read Decline and Fall, and I thought you know, I could imagine doing that after university in the middle of Yorkshire somewhere, something like that. And... In fact, uh, I was offered a job at Birkbeck College London, where I subsequently then spent 33 years. I, I've applied for two academic jobs in my life, and uh, I've been offered both of them, uh, luckily. So I don't know whether that's a good rate or a, or a very poor employment rate. It's sort of both. And um, Birkbeck was and is an absolutely extraordinary and in a million different ways for all of the people who have anything to do with it, incredibly formative institution. It's the College of the University of London that continues to specialise in part-time education. The academics involved in it are University of London academics who are themselves full-time, but the students by and large, there are more full-time students now, but the students themselves are at work, they're in full-time employment, and you've got to put on some kind of show at six o'clock at night on a wet, foggy November night um, that makes it worthwhile in normal times for people to think of getting on an underground train um, and coming and sitting and listening to you talking about Brecht rather than going to the pub. Um, so, so it's a curious sort of para-academic institution in the very best sense, in the sense that it's alongside academic life. Uh, so much in Birkbeck means that you can't take things for granted. All, every style of life is about what you take for granted, but quite a lot of, of the way that you live an academic life in Birkbeck, teaching those kinds of students, doesn't take things for granted. So you're able to be oddly enough, serious about something in the way that Birkbeck students are serious, because 
there's a certain kind of, you know, they don't have to do it. That's why they're serious about it. Whereas students who sort of have to do it because, you know, they're racking up enormous loans and it's what you do when you're aged 18, uh, are, as we know, uh, not quite sure how to be serious about being academic. And that's that's always seemed to me, although I realise it only now, uh, to have been immensely formative in Birkbeck. It, it took what it was doing very, very seriously because it wasn't, as it were, completely, in Foucault's nice phrase, in the true. How have you found the shift from Birkbeck to Cambridge? Because they're obviously very different kinds of institution, although they may have their connections, of which I'm not aware, you know, in terms of similarities between them. But I mean, it, it just in terms of that that dynamic that you've been talking about, you know, the you begin your career at a place that in some ways is quite atypical. Yeah. Uh, well, the age thing is, is much more extraordinary than I imagined because I was 33 years older when I moved to Cambridge in uh, 2012. And in the meantime, I, I realised that I'd stopped being the youngest person in the room. That was very often the case when I began my career in 1980 at Birkbeck. And, um, you know, middle-aged ladies would come up to me at the end of a lecture and say things like, I thought you did very well. And uh, and then gradually I sort of grew into what Lacan calls the, the subject supposed to know. I sort of, you know, accepted that kind of fantasy of being the person who's supposed to know about all of these things, you know, which is absolutely necessary to do to be any good as as a teacher. And then but then to arrive in Cambridge and see these people that I, I wanted to call men and women because I knew that was polite, but I really felt were children. Uh, you know, just because uh, by that time I'd become very much older, and this is a this is a very silly thing, and I should have known better. But it does make an enormous difference to what you're doing, and and I do actually think that for all of its venerable antiquity, the thing that is every day most surprising is how actually infantilizing a university is. I mean, Oxford and Cambridge, I think, much much more infantilizing because of the colleges and the way you know we, we, our I, I think I'm right in saying this but we have graduate students these are grown people they're adults who if they wish not to be in Cambridge under normal circumstances for three or four weeks because they're going to an archive or to work in a lab have to apply for permission to work away uh, and it's a really formal thing and uh, uh, you know i think people quite like it because it's it's quite ridiculous it's quite soothing when you have ridiculous things like that um it suggests that everything you know everything has been we've been doing it this way for centuries and everything will be fine i mean i suppose one of the things that that i find particularly fascinating about that is the difference in perspective you have just based in based in age terms you know moving from a young man to an older man and and moving between two different kinds of institution and having to deal with the same crowd, as it were, even though the crowd also has changed shape and dynamic. But it is magnificent that you still get to ask the same questions. And there is still this very arresting thing. I, I, I do think it's a, it's a pretty English or Anglo-Saxon thing of, of genuinely asking questions that you, you, you know all the fancy ways of thinking about the questions, but you don't really know the answer. So if I say, well, what, what does the rhyme in this poem do? What's the effect? And there isn't 
a secret answer. It sort of means, you know, do a little bit of thinking for me. And we'll we'll talk about that little bit of thinking. And that applies, um, I mean, in both cases, that there might very well be a sort of expectation that there's some secret answer. But I think that very strong tradition of that I think is very strong, strong, strongly accented in the the supervision system, the one to one supervision system. I mean, all universities do this. Um, it's just that Oxford and Cambridge, you know, can afford to do it a bit more. And that encounter with people who who've been thinking really hard about things for thirty or forty years and they still don't know, which is what actually makes it more interesting and serious than just, as it were, transmitting information. One of the most difficult questions I ever get asked by students, which comes from a place of anxiety often, is what sort of answers are you looking for? And and this comes sometimes in relation to assessments, you know, sort of what are you looking for as the sort of the model answer? Um, but it often also comes just in terms of, you know, how should we comport ourselves in a seminar? What 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 sort of things are we here to talk about? And often I I don't know how to answer it other than to say answers, be they small, big, short, long, any, anything, just as long as we can talk and sort of work our way together through things. I mean, do you, do you find the same difficulty with that? I do. And knowing how to do things and knowing what it means to help somebody to do something that you know how to do turns out to be very complicated. We have all kinds of ways of doing it, but we might, they might not be very conscious consciously articulated ways. So the sort of tacit or implicit knowledge in knowing what sort of thing counts as the right kind of answer to the question, what does this rhyme do? So you could say, oh, it makes me feel nice, which isn't a bad answer as long as you then think about what feeling nice means and why you might feel nice rather than nasty in relation to Hopkins or something. But I think it's very much, uh, I, I, I tell the story of, a dear friend of mine, Jeremy Harding Edgar, who I was at school with and I shared a flat with, um, and who who died very recently. And Jeremy was a brilliant sportsman. He was one of these sickening people who was good at everything. He knew all about cooking. He got he acquired our flat for us, and he knew how to clean. He really knew how to Hoover, and I really didn't know how to Hoover at eighteen. And he organised us like a sort of boarding school. And uh, I could never play tennis very well and I love tennis and um and my serve like m- most not very good tennis players w- was really awful and he said I'll show you how to ser- serve a tennis ball Steve so so um we went out across to the university courts which were right opposite our flat in Ifley Road in Oxford and um he got a big carrier bag full of tennis balls and said okay serve the ball so I did it over and over and over and over again. And he didn't give me any tips. You know, most of what you learn about serving a tennis ball is to think about things that you mustn't forget to do, or most importantly, think about things you mustn't you mustn't forget to avoid doing, which is completely hopeless. And actually you do it all the time. You say, what you must do is, is to avoid talking about your personal life, but talk about kind of general things. But, you know, and what he did was he, he waited until I did it in a halfway decent way and said, do it like that. And because you do, you know, when you've done something in a particular kind of way, you do have a sort of muscle memory of what it was like to do it. And human beings are incredibly bad at following in- instructions and incredibly good at imitating. We're not apes for nothing. 
And um, so, so, you know, giving people a sort of an example and saying, do it like that, without necessarily giving them a toolkit for following the instructions, without necessarily giving them meta instructions, can be surprisingly effective. That's, that's why I like lecturing, because of the, you know, the category error that lecturing involves. People think you're telling them things. You're not really, are you? What you're doing is you're giving a performance of somebody doing things in a certain way. You're giving a performance of somebody who's really interested in a particular way, in a particular kind of question. And and in some students, it just sort of takes. They think, oh, I think I could do something like that. Yeah, this as you were talking about the tennis, I was thinking about writing and how everything you were saying there, you know, I mean, as you as you've just drawn out, sort of applies to to you know most activities. But I think it applies brilliantly to to writing. And I wanted to ask you actually, because I really want to talk about your 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 approach to writing, not least because it's enabled you to write so much. But what who were your models? Who who did you begin by imitating as opposed to following the instructions of? Well, I do have models for writing because everybody has models for writing. I was I was taught by Terry Eagleton in Oxford. Terry was one of those, I think, actually very old-fashioned kinds of supervisors who would do an awful lot of talking. And Terry talks as magnificently as he writes. And I was just in awe of how somebody was able to sort of talk in whole paragraphs and always wanted to do that. And it turns out that you probably just need kind of little tricks. And in fact, I often recommend to students that if they're, if they're, if they're feeling a bit tied up and they can't quite sort of fight their way through to what, what it is that they think, they might just want to try some different turns of phrase. I always remember there was a, there was a, um, a physicist in Birkbeck. I probably better be careful here. Well, no, I, I won't be careful. Um, so his name was Elliot Leader. And we, we had a, a brilliant charismatic master at Birkbeck. Uh, and I yield to nobody in my estimation of her skills, uh, Tessa Blackstone. But Tessa really didn't have time for fuss and nonsense. And she was incredibly good at, at moving through to to stark alternatives, which is really quite important, I think, for somebody chairing a meeting. And she would quite often say, look, we must either do this or not. And Elliot said to her, I'm not sure that exhausts the alternatives, Master. That little phrase, I'm not sure that, and of course, you know, this is a little rhetorical demonstration of the fallacy of the excluded middle, but just that little phrase is an all-purpose thinking tool. And so I recommend little phrases like that. I actually recommend, I, I, I'm really kind of childishly materialistic when I think about writing and its relation to thinking. I actually recommend to students that they find a writer who doesn't write like them and physically, in handwriting, write out a paragraph from that writer. Because it's a way of putting your fingers into the sockets of somebody else's rhythm of thought and way of thinking, which may not be spontaneous to them. It may itself be a, you know, intricate sort of acquisition on their part. But, you know, we are just very good at taking contagion and not very, very good at at following instructions. 
even instructions that we give ourselves. So I, I think uh, anything that you can do to open yourself productively to forms of contagion, and, you know, it can get out of control. Most of Terry Eagleton's students end up, you know, writing Terry Eagleton sentences for a very, very long time. And, uh, you know, that, that can't be helped. You can't tell yourself not to do it. All you can do is just expose yourself to other kinds of verbal virus. This is fascinating because it, it, it reminds me of my experience as a music student, as a sixth former, when in order to, so, so, so part of the, the qualification I was following required you to compose a, a small portfolio of pieces and it could be anything you liked. So, you know, you could take any models you, you wanted and then as now, the, the, the sort of the music I tended to listen to was um, 19th century sort of classical music and Chopin then as now is one of my sort of musical idols and rather than learn how to imitate Chopin by just playing his music my music teacher said use this recording software to play out his pieces that you're interested in and record them into sheet music form as you do it and it was the same as you know transcribing but but a quick a quicker way of doing it and and just the simple act of thinking about it like that so you play a c sharp minor chord when you're performing and it's just a c sharp minor chord because you know that something has to follow it in the preordained sequence of the musical score but when you were doing it with this sort of approach at the back of your mind you were thinking ah now i'm a composer what where where can i go from here chopin knows where he's going but i don't anymore <laughs> you know and it and it revealed the contingency of every single choice in a really helpful way that I'm not sure if it made imitation easier or harder, but it, but it certainly turned it into a different sort of thought. I've never really done serious composition, but I have done quite a lot of amateur dramatics, which uh, not for a very long time, I might say, perhaps because I, you know, I get plenty of professional opportunities for it, like a lot of English lecturers. But um, I do think about you know, certain aspects of that experience all the time. And latterly, a great deal, because I've become very, very interested in in the sort of conscious and unconscious stylings of existence. And I always remember a marvellous director, who wasn't a director at that point, he was an actor called Adam Godley, um, who's now become really quite successful. And I remember he was directing a rather peculiar play that we put on in Birkbeck. And he just said, okay, at this point, you go to the door and open it. (laughs) And when somebody says to you, just go to the door, it doesn't sound like it's a hard thing to do. But you suddenly find yourself under that circumstance saying, yes, but how? How shall I go to this door and open this door? And it turns out there is an infinity of ways in which that can be done. And all of a sudden, you have this, you're, you're standing at the edge of this chasm of opportunity thinking, well, what shall I do? Shall I stride to it? Shall I sort of tiptoe? Shall I kind of go to it straight to it or circuitously? And, and I, used to, I used to remember this a lot. I was the college orator at Birkbeck, so I would do speeches in praise of people who were given honorary fellowships at graduation ceremonies. So it meant that I spent a long time on the stage watching hundreds of people coming and shaking the hand of the master when they were getting their degrees. We used to call it the sheep dip. And you would see the same thing that people, all people had to do. They were told what you do is you wait at the side of the dais. And when your name is called, you walk across the stage, you shake the hand of the master and take your certificate. Almost impossible to do. People forgot how to do. And, you know, the demands of simultaneously walking and putting out your hand 
to shake a hand were, were inconceivably large because there were so many ways that you could do it. You know, so people would try. I mean, you would literally see people who would forget to swing their right arm when they moved their left leg and they would do that peculiar com comedy walk. Or some of them would think, for safety's sake, I better stick out my hand right at the beginning of the walk. So they would advance with their hand extended just in case. Very, very peculiar. And it turns out that, you know, there, there is a, a, a peculiar kind of autism of a sort of failure of inwardness that can suddenly afflict us when we're when we're actually given a sort of freedom of choice and i think it's part of the kind of nausea that affects some people when they do that strange thing of writing which is supposed to be just sort of writing down things you think but of course it's a bit like walking across a stage my experience of being a student walking across a stage to be awarded my degree and the the sort of the panic of that paled in comparison to the experience of sitting on the stage watching everyone else do the same thing over and over and over again <laughs> you know every single time you know every single name that was called out was a new opportunity for being on edge and uh, it's one of the most stressful things you do as an academic I think is being on that stage watching all those students collect their degrees because it's as you say it's just there are so many different kinds of well panic I suppose that are sort of motivated in that moment there are it's the panic of freedom it's it's the the freedom of anything being able to happen and, you know, that's why so many things in human life are stylized. We don't want freedom. We want there to be a way to do it. Show me how to serve a tennis ball. Show me how to walk. So we're talking about freedom. Maybe we could turn this and orientate this to the freedom of choice as it has emerged through the onward development of your of your research. Because it seems to me that your research is certainly free in the sense that it is very generously open to well to anything really <laughs> um you know it's moved from i suppose what you could call a more traditional focus you begin with you know you, your your research career sort of began with dickens and then quickly moves into postmodern theory and then sort of the the braces are taken off the 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 you know everything is sort of released and your work has quickly become open ended in the most positive sense you know you're you're turning from topic to topic maintaining all the while uh, a consistency of uh, what am I trying to say? A sort of it's it's hard to say what I'm trying to say because I think the, the 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 nature of the things that you turn to in each case are so different. But in each case, there are consistencies of conceptualization of strategy of manner in the way you handle all these things. So so sorry, that's too many questions. But I suppose what I'm really asking is, could you talk us through the development of your increasingly open-ended writing and research? Well, as, as you will expect me to say, there was never a plan. I think what I'll do is I'll spend like 10 years working on authors. That should be enough. They should probably decide they won't be sacking me at that point. And then I'm going to go wild. An awful lot in my life, I suspect, like a lot of people's lives, are, are just things that people ask me to do. And I, I, I come to feel I'm, I'm quite an obliging sort of person. I, I, I like to do things that you know, people are kind enough to ask me to do. So uh, I was asked if I would write a book on Dickens for a series, and I like that. And uh, the, the book that I wrote, which aimed to explicate a lot of different kinds of theories of what postmodernism is, arose because an editor at Blackwell was at a conference that I was at and said, you know, I would just love somebody to write a book with the words introduction, theory and postmodernism in the title 
And I said, I'm your man. Because surprisingly enough, you would think there would be a million, but there weren't always a million books with those three words in the title. So, you know, that was just a sort of a, it was a sort of a commission. There were a commission that, that, that gave me a sort of mandate to move very freely uh, among and across things that, that didn't necessarily actually have all that much in common. I mean, I did spend an awful lot of my, of my life on what a friendly but acute friend of mine once called the higher paraphrase. There's quite a lot of laying out that I've done in some of my earlier books. I mean, the book I wrote on Beckett, um, which I think has got lots of good things in it, but really was a kind of laying out of a series of very, as it seemed to me, obvious affinities between Beckett and theoretical thinking in what in those days was called post-structuralism that nobody articulated. Nowadays, it seems part of the landscape. How could anybody not realise this? But when I started writing the book on Beckett, Everybody talked about how post-structuralism is all anticipated by uh, and all to be found in Joyce. But nobody said that about, about Beckett. It seemed much less promising. So, so in a certain kind of sense, there's, there's quite a lot of explication, quite a lot of laying out. And that's a very reassuring thing to do. Laura Marcus, who was a colleague of mine in Birkbeck um, for quite a while, used to say this terribly wise thing to students who were, and colleagues actually, who were blocked, couldn't couldn't write, couldn't make any progress, she would say, well, just just describe something. And it's true. It feels as though you're not actually doing any work when you just describe something, though you always are doing much more work than you think. So that's explication. And that certainly did occupy me for quite a long time. Um, I think really, I wrote a book, um, which in a way marks a new way of thinking on ventriloquism, I thought this would be a very quick turnaround book. I thought that I would just, I, I, was, I was struck by how often literary critics use the metaphor of ventriloquism when talking about writers and their, their mobility between different voices. And I thought, well, actually, how, how, you know, I, I knew what ventriloquism was. And so what's the link between this metaphor and the practice? I thought it would be a little article. Uh, it was focused on an essay I was writing about Joyce at the time. I thought it would be a little article about 19th century musical and that kind of thing. Actually, looking at the page devoted to the word ventriloquism in the OED, had that page had and has in capsule a six-year research undertaking in which I tracked the different meanings, the provenance of that word, that metaphor, ventriloquism. So, you know, I was sort of pulled in lots and lots of different directions. And I think it's not coincidental that this is the moment at which research resources become available. So uh, in the British Library, I was using one of these newfangled things, a database, and I was coming on Latin uses, and ventriloquism is a Latin word, and I was coming on Latin uses of this word, and I didn't know what they were in. They were in something, uh, a database that dealt with the Patrologia Latina. I didn't know what this was, and I actually asked a librarian in the British Library. People never ask librarians things. They really, really should. Um, and she took me into the old round reading room and showed me this 19th century edition of all of the writings, sermons and essays and so forth, of the early church fathers in the first centuries of the Christian era. Said, that's it. That is what this database is giving you access to. So that was useful. People don't usually tend to do that now, connect up the sorts of search results they're getting with the actual source. But it was the beginning of that world in which you could 
in a rather scrambled sort of way, travel very, very widely in, in, you know, in search of a particular kind of conceptual history embodied, especially if it's embodied in the travels of a particular word, as conceptual history so often is. So that was Dumbstruck. That was the book that became Dumbstruck in um, 2000. And it's certainly true that the, the experience of surprise at how far this word and this idea went historically, conceptually, you know, in terms of discipline and so forth, suggested to me that there might be other such topics that didn't have a bibliography, that didn't necessarily, wasn't necessarily in the jurisdiction of of particular kinds of people, whether they were medics or physicists or philosophers or theologians. And I think probably the next book was that I did that with was a book on the skin, the idea of the skin. Here, actually, I was following in the footsteps of a psychoanalyst called Didier Anzieux, uh, who wrote a book, Le Moi Peau, that translated as The Skin Ego, in which actually he does an awful lot of this way. He's a psychoanalyst, so he's interested really in the kind of, you know, in the relationship between subjectivity, selfhood, and the skin. But in the process, you know, he reads very, very widely about the, the, the different functions. And in fact, he produces nine different functions of skin identification, which I sort of built on and, and wrote a book called The Book of Skin. It is very peculiar, you know, Nath, that you do things that seem like they're a little bit wild. I, I did say, I remember saying to my partner that I think I might write a book about the skin. Do you think that sounds a bit insane? And she said, yes, I think it does sound rather insane. Actually, now it's it's a it's a perfectly ordinary, fully curricular thing. It's not it's not because of me, actually, because it turns out there are always other people thinking the same thing for some mystical reason <laughs> at the same time. Things seem as though they're configured in such a way that certain people are, are just all at the same time going to kind of respond. My partner, who's also an academic, we used to, we used to do quite a lot of kind of speculative invention. We produced an entire bibliography for an imaginary theorist whose name we would try to insinuate into serious conversations. And it was a French theorist called Serge de Rigueur. And uh, Rigueur wrote about absolutely everything. But among the things, among the most surprising things he wrote about was pirate discourse. And we just sort of loved the idea that there might be, you know, the whole kind of world of Pirates of the Caribbean might become, you know, a kind of serious matter of, well, I promise you, it's all happened. There is nothing that you can imagine about, you know, the craziness of academic discourse that won't, in fact, be replayed. It's like like the 18th Brumaire history being replayed as farce. In academic life, there is no farcical idea that cannot be replayed as solemnity. And you can, you you know, you'll find lots of um, uh, essays on pirate discourse in the present day. It's amazing, isn't it, how the the predictability of the academic machine sort of leads to certain convergences that can be both extremely sort of energizing and also... um, uh, terrifying at the same time, you know that there's that that, that sensation that all of my PhD students um, raise to me when they say, you know, what if I get to the final year of my PhD and discover that someone else has done my topic? And I've always said to them, well, I'm sorry, you you, you will discover that 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 unfortunately is par for the course. You know, you will always that will always happen. 
and I think it's I think it's it's always much easier just to think of something that doesn't count as a subject. Think of something that that actually is. I mean, you do have to practice this. You do have to practice being that incredibly annoying person who finds everything interesting. That's a very interesting thing, isn't it? Why? But it really does turn out. And look, th- there's a very low strike rate with this. You have to you have to try out lots and lots of of different things. That it turns out that other people have been interested in and they turn out not to be very interesting or they just you know they just sort of don't go anywhere but sometimes sometimes it's it's good for people just to kind of see where you could fit in and just take opportunities that i love my little book on the fly it's just called fly and it's part of a, a part of a series uh, and i like writing series books because in a certain kind of way the framework is sort of there for you i went into reaction books and i loved their animal series about the, the, the sort of cultural profile and history of different animals. A brilliant conception. And I looked and I saw that all the all the nasty animals, all the insects had gone. People had done spider and cockroach. And all that was left was fly. And I, I didn't know anything about flies, really. I didn't even know the thing that characterizes flies until I started reading about it. Namely, they have two wi- two wings, which is why a butterfly isn't a fly, because it's got four wings. And um, as it were, you know, fly opened up, just sort of making sense of this non-subject, what a fly is meant to human beings. And, and actually the lovely fact that it turned out that what flies have meant to human beings is something like the inconsiderable or the meaningless you know, so in Emily Dickens's poem, I heard a fly buzz when I died. It's just a wonderfully comic idea that you're trying to get on with a serious business of dying and you and a bloody fly is going to be, come on, give me a break. I'm trying to die here. So the fly was absolutely part of that, completely unexpected. You know, you 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 sort of do have to take things seriously and give them their space and sort of, you know, see if they are something that are worth the absorption. And this is not, excuse me, a fly-by-night affair, because you really do want something that you're going to be sucked into and you're going to be absorbed in. You want something that's going to be like hobby-like, that you would you would do it and you would steal time from other things to do it, even if nobody was paying you or rewarding you. What you've just been saying describes to me, or seems to describe to me, the, the arc of the way you're sort of publications have recently gone in terms of taking serious something or taking seriously something that doesn't seem to be there but on closer inspection turns out to have been there all along so I'm thinking of your most recent book Giving Way I I imagine the experience of researching and writing that is a continual encounter with things that we do all the time namely stepping aside or being modest or you know allowing someone else to do something in your place you know those sorts of activities and now seems also to um, have been or, or have come into the centre of your attention? Because you're writing about seriousness itself now, I gather. Yes. I, I sort of have a feeling that um, the, the, that I've, I'm writing a sort of sequence that is broken up, as Chesterton said about Dickens's writing, at rather arbitrary moments. Chesterton said, you know, Dickens is just a sort of writing mill, and every 20 months he just sort of chops off the length and calls it a novel. Uh, but really it's just a kind of machine whirring away. In this case, I have started to become very interested in not so much objects and material things um, and our engagement with them that has that, you know, that I've been very attentive to and been very interested in for a, for a long time. But the, the sort of material 
instantiations of quite abstract relations. So, you know, giving way, I was really very interested in in literally the gestures of standing aside. There's this, there's this very English phrase that sort of elderly aunts might have said in my youth, perhaps they do still say it somewhere, that somebody is very backwards in coming forwards. And I thought, oh, that is is philosophically very incisive, that there are ways of coming forwards in, in going backwards. And, you know, some of those are corporeal. I'm very interested in, in bowing and curtsying and those kinds of actions, sort of postural and gestural actions. But of course, many of these things are verbal as well. So, so the book is full of things that, things that are the opposite of what we're very interested in at the moment, which is assertion and what people call agency. One of my favorite words, because it's, it's self-undoing. You know, you use an agent to do something for you, you know, rather than doing it for yourself, even though agency means doing things for yourself. So, uh, so it's a book against agency. And I thought, oh, perhaps I should be much more assertive about it. And then people would be upset by it. And then they would buy the book and all of that sort of thing. And I think Stanford were quite interested in it being called against agency. But I thought that was just too assertive a thing for I thought I would look for a slightly more polite way of being against agency. So didn't you want originally to call it abstitutions? Is that correct? Yes, and it's still a lot of my books have unofficial titles, like the Queen's unofficial birthday. The, the book that's called Beyond Words was always going to be called Aristotle's Cough, because it starts with a little thing about why Aristotle finds coughing so strange. And it's so it's sort of in my mind, it's like a pet name for a child. It's sort of it sort of still is Aristotle's cough. And giving way, I thought I'd better invent a word that would be a word that I, I hoped didn't already exist. Really hard to invent words in English. I hoped wouldn't exist. And that would be about all of the ways, you know, given the, the huge family of substitution words from Stowe, Stare to Stand, substitution, constitution, institution, prostitution, all of them ways of standing somewhere else from where you are. I thought, well, you know, what about abstitution, which would be a standing away? a standing that wasn't really a standing. So I'm still quite pleased with it. And I still do. Um, I was actually, I had a, a very, very kind and intelligent, but rather strict editor at Stanford. And I said, well, look, I won't put it in the title. I agree. It's not a title. It's a very mystifying title. I'll just, you know, so I just put it through the book, sewed it through the book. And she wrote me an email saying, Steve, you haven't understood you may not use the word abstitution anywhere in this book, if you please. Um, so I'm, you know, I'm well brought up and obedient. So I, I agree. But I do slip it in to other circumstances like this one. So that was giving way. And giving way itself gave way to something like the opposite. I mean, I, be I became more and more aware of how it is that human beings do what an anthropologist writing in the 1960s called Bargaining from Below. Because human beings are intensely sociable animals, very, very intricately knit together, being in trouble is a very, as we like to say nowadays, empowering condition. Children learn very, very early on that the more or less the only way they can have power in the world is to be at risk. And because they, you know, they can make people, can organize people around them. You know, I'm hungry, I've fallen over, I'm sad. And human beings never forget this. 
this power that inheres in, well, you know, nowadays people are rather rude about what they call the condition of victimhood. But it is interesting that the word victim actually shares an etymological root with the word victor. So, you know, we've had this kind of apprehension. It has to do with um, Roman actions of sacrifice, actually, uh, and all of the ambivalence involved in, in being a sacrificial victim. So then the next book, but which which almost started to form itself in ideas for chapters that might have been in given, giving way, was about a rather more assertive way of being backwards and coming forwards, which is asking for things, which, uh, and I'm, I'm very interested in politeness, and there's a, there's a large and very informative literature, linguistic literature on politeness codes. There's actually a journal of politeness studies, which is absolutely full of richness. And I read in a couple of articles there that asking is a very ticklish thing in most languages and in most human affairs. You know, that's why we have an expression like, may I ask? So, well, so wait a minute, why don't you just ask instead of asking me whether or not you have permission to ask? You know, what I mean? but we do this all the time. We do this all the time. And we do it because asking is, we know, quite invasive because asking is, as the French word has it, demanding. Demanding and demanding is commanding. And there is a certain kind of forcefulness in the apparent non-forcefulness of, of humbly begging, asking. Um, so I, I, so then I made a collection. I like to say to my students, if you don't know what you think, just spread things out. This is one of these thinking phrases that I remember from a tutor in Oxford uh, who wasn't an uh, English tutor, was a ph philosophy tutor. And I was struggling a bit with the concept. And he said, Steve, can you just spread that idea out a bit? And when you think about it, spreading an idea out sounds like a really, really easy, messy infant school thing to do. But it takes you to all kinds of places that tell you all kinds of things. So I spread out the idea of asking, tried to produce a sort of taxonomy. I imagined a spectrum uh, from the absolutely humblest form, most abject form of asking at one end to the most demanding and aggressive form of asking the various modalities of demand and imagine the ways in which the sorts of dynamic that are involved in all of this, this, you know, lit literature, this is a very literary sort of topic. Uh, it's not just literature, but, you know, um, the formalization of asking is something that, um, that writers and especially dramatists are tremendously interested in. I've got a chapter in the book on wooing, which is a sort of form of asking or begging, um, and much more widely spread than among humans. Animals, of course, have very elaborate courting and wooing and seduction rituals, or many of which are actually modifications of uh, food begging behavior in the infants of the species. So that that's another kind of cluster of things. The third book, in what I'm, I'm actually thinking of as a sort of trilogy that might really be linked together in a, in a daisy chain, is I hope, to be called Styles of Seriousness. This arose actually on the rebound from thinking that I'd really like to write about the comedy of serious philosophical reflection. I've, I've, I've been interested for a long time in the way in which philosophers treat laughter and jokes and comedy, and I've written a few things about that. But I wanted, I, I had the ambition of trying to reverse that and saying, well, what would be not the philosophy of comedy, but the comedy of philosophy? 
would there be some sort of serious way of taking philosophy that might, you know, underline its comic dimensions? And a, and a, and a, a philosopher like Jean-Paul Sartre actually maintains something like this. He's, he, he wrote at one point that his entire work had been written against the spirit of seriousness. And then I, I thought, well, actually, why does this sound so dull? And it did sound very dull. It partly sounded dull because actually lots of people have, have now done it to become interested in the, the, the comedy of philosophy. And I thought, well, actually, we sort of think we know what seriousness is and what's involved in seriousness, but people don't really write about it. They take it for granted. You would not believe how many books there are available on Amazon with a title having some variant of the formula, taking X seriously, taking human rights seriously, taking physics seriously, taking Marxism seriously, taking New Zealand seriously. There's a book with that title. Why would you not take New Zealand seriously? You know, why is there a sort of rescue mission required for that? What is seriousness? So I thought, well, in a certain kind of way, one might come at this by thinking of all the ways, all, all the things that seriousness is not. And it turns out that, you know, there are many, many different ways of being serious. Some of them, you know, a serious illness is different from the seriousness that's involved in, in saying something without joking. And I wanted to see if there was some sort of conversation to be had between these things. So have ended up, uh, this is still in process, I think, I've ended up with chapters on zeal, which is, zeal is a really, really useful word because it's a very antique religious sounding words, makes us think of 17th century Puritans and that kind of thing. But actually, once you're equipped with this word, you see zeal everywhere. <laughs> we, live, we live in an era of zeal, there's no doubt about it. And I'm guided by a wonderful book by Peter Sloterdijk called God's Zeal, um, which is about actually uh, the growth of monotheism. And it's got a chapter on the idea of importance and the idea of warning. This this chapter was instigated by that, that wonderful road sign that you know amuses a lot of people, um, which is the road sign warning you of falling rocks. You know the one? There's a little sort of picture of a, a steep incline and rocks tumbling down the gradient. And you think, what am I meant to do with this warning? Does this mean it's the old paradox of should you run through the rain or walk? You know, if I if I drive really, really fast, am I going to increase my chances of getting through without being hit by an avalanche? Or am I just going to increase my chances of arriving at the point where the avalanche is coming down? What should I do? I mean, somebody said to me, don't be silly, Steve. This is all about, you know, rocks on the road. Uh, but that's not what the picture shows you. The picture shows you the rocks, you know, try to weave in and out of the rocks. So useless warnings struck me as a very, very interesting example of the way in which human beings work at, develop habitual modes of being serious or taking things seriously. Especially at the moment, I, I tried, I've been writing a lot you know, since we've all been at home in the pandemic. But I tried not to write about the pandemic. But one of the things that's extraordinary is every night we're being warned of things that we cannot possibly, you know, cannot possibly take any evasive action for. And either this is this is upsetting us and, you know, making us exhaustedly and uselessly alert to dangers, 
often attached to numbers, you know, so look, temperatures are rising by this amount or case numbers are rising in Haringey day by day. Do something. The thing you're supposed to do is to do nothing. <laughs> Stay on the sofa. Um, and, and I wondered, well, what, why do we want things? Why do we want to be in that state of seriousness in relation to the future? Why does it seem so strange and foppish and irresponsible to say, well, that will be sad if that happens. You know, so seriousness in the mode of admonition, of which there is a very, very long literary history as well. The act of warning and what the act of warning has meant is is another one of the chapters. Um, and um, and so on. <laughs> uh, there is a final chapter. I have a long, I'm afraid I have form of writing chapters that other people have to tell me don't belong in what I'm writing. Michael Lehman the uh, um, senior editor of uh, Reaction Books is very good at this. I was writing a book about drumming and drum skins and musical membranes that I was delighted with that was going to be part of a, a, a book called The Matter of Air. No, it's the other way around. This was, this was going to be part of my book of skin. And he said, that doesn't belong in this book. That's the next book, Steve. And he was right because you know it was actually about it was actually about air, the thing about drumming and bagpipes and and that sort of thing. So the final chapter of styles of seriousness was always going to be perhaps it perhaps it still will be about the seriousness of work. Got to work, you know, be very serious about your work and the thing that human beings take most seriously and is the the most absurd thing that human beings do is is commit themselves seriously to their work. So I thought I might just write a book. Actually, this is not a new subject work, but I do think we, we do exist in a sort of an era of perturbation in relation to what work is. And of course, this is this is entirely reflexive because it's the condition that academics live in. The, the, you know, the, the fear that you'll be caught out, people will realise how much fun this is and think, why you want paying as well? For heaven's sake! So, so all of the ways in which we pretend the ludicrous pretenses that we we have about about our our work, and I think that our do take a, perhaps a particularly intense form today, um, might be might be the subject um, of this book, which I, I don't know what it would be called. I thought I might call it "Taking Care of Business" or perhaps perhaps "Honest Toil." It turns out, did you know there's an olive oil? that brilliantly is called Honest Toil. Um, so uh, I think I might, you know, salute them in the opening chapter of this book, if I ever get to write it. Well, I'm looking forward not only to Dials of Seriousness, but also anything you have to say about work. I uh, I think we don't have any time for any more discussion. Unfortunately, I would love to carry on talking, but Thank you so much for taking the time to lay all this out and to talk so brilliantly about, you know, everything that you're interested in. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Nath, for giving me the chance. It's been great fun.